0: Welcome to Silmarillion Sunday. I am Don Marshall72, the obscure Lord of the Rings facts guy. We are now on part 23 of this video series and part 2 of the Silmarillion. This is what's known as the Akalabeth. This is a big one because a lot of what we will find in this portion of the book, I don't like to say chapter because it's basically just one long run on chapter for like 20 or 30 pages. A lot of what we are gonna find here is what we are going to see in the Amazon TV show. So we could potentially see any of the storylines that show up here in the Second Age on the story, on uh, the Amazon TV show, because the Akalabeth is all about the Second Age of Middle-earth, which is what they are focusing on. Now, will they probably try and use some creative liberties in the Amazon TV show? Yeah, uh, probably. You can't really look at the second age without referencing the first age. Uh, special thank you to all of you that have made it this far in the video series. Uh, my my videos from a few weeks ago are still getting views, which is incredible to me that we have made it this far and that so many of you are still here with me. So, I am going to uh, begin the reading. If anyone has any questions, feel free to put them in the chat. Uh, I will pause every few paragraphs, and uh, I know towards the end of the last part, I didn't take as many questions, only because it was a little bit more prosaic. This one, we might get into a couple more questions, because it is a little bit confusing. So, let's begin. The Akalabeth, the downfall of Numenor. By the way, uh, spoilers for the Amazon TV show. If you want to go in totally blind to the Amazon TV show... You can stop right here. No hard feelings. All right. The Downfall of Númenor. It is said by the Eldar that men came into the world in the time of the shadow of Morgoth, and they fell swiftly under his dominion. For he sent his emissaries among them, and they listened to his evil and cunning words, and they worshipped the darkness, and yet feared it. But there were some that turned from evil and left the lands of their kindred and wandered ever westward, for they had heard of rumors that in the west there was a light which the shadow the shadow could not dim. The servants of Morgoth pursued them with hatred, and their ways were long and hard. Yet they came at last to the lands that looked upon the sea, and they entered Valeriant in the days of the War of the Jewel. So this is kind of like a recap of uh, everything that happened in the First Age and how uh, humans—full disclosure, in a brief pause—when Tolkien says man or the age of man, he means humans. It is, you know, there's some sexism there, um, but, you know, in most of at least the English language, the term man is referred to as mankind, meaning all humans. Um, So just take that with a grain of salt. The Edain, these were named in the Sindarin tongue, so the Edain is another word for humans. And they became friends and allies of the Eldar, and did deeds of great valor in the war against Morgoth. Of them was sprung upon the side of the fathers bright Earendil, and in the lay of Earendil it is told how, at the last, when the victory of Morgoth was almost complete, he built his ship Vingilot that men called Rothinzil and voyaged upon the unsailed seas, seeking ever for Valinor, for he desired to speak before the powers on behalf of them, of the two kindreds, and the Valar might have pity on them, and send them help in their uttermost need. Therefore, by elves and men, he is called Earendil the Blessed, for he achieved his quest after long labors and many perils, and from Valinor there came the host of the lords of the west. But Earendil came never back to the lands That he had loved. So just to briefly pause there, again, I'm going to pause a lot uh, on this one. Um, This is basically a recap of everything that happened in the last chapter of the Silmarillion. Um, Elrond's dad sailed his ship over to the Undying Lands to ask for help from the Valar, the lesser gods of Tolkien's universe, and in doing so basically saved the world. In the great battle, when at last Morgoth was overthrown and Thangorodrim was broken—Thangorodrim is his, uh, like, fortress tower—the Edain alone of the kindred of men fought alongside the Valar, whereas many others fought for Morgoth. And after the victory of the lords of the west, those of the evil men, who were not destroyed, fled back into the east, where many of their race were still wandering in the unharvested lands, wild and lawless, Refusing alike the summons of the Valar and of Morgoth, and the evil men came among them and cast over them a shadow of fear, and they took them for their kings. So the influence of Morgoth is still here, right? There is still a, uh, there is still a, a. Um, on, sorry, something's popping up on my desktop. Uh, there is still a. Uh, a lingering evil, right? I think that what Tolkien usually tries to say is that the evil of Sauron and Morgoth never truly goes away. And the evil men came among them and cast over them a shadow of a fear, and they took them for kings. Then the Valar forsook for a time the men of Middle-earth who had refused their summons and had taken the friends of Morgoth to be their masters. And men dwelt in darkness and were troubled by many evil things that Morgoth had despised, or devised in the days of his dominion, demons and dragons and misshapen beasts and the unclean orcs that were mockeries of the children of Iluvatar. And the lot of men was unhappy. But Monwë put forth Morgoth and shut him beyond the world in the void that is without. So think of it like an alternate dimension prison, kind of, if that makes sense present and visible, while the lords of the west are still, oh, excuse me, and he cannot himself return again into the world, present and visible, while the lords of the west are still enthroned. Yet the seeds that he planted still grew and sprouted, bearing evil fruit, if any would tend them. For his, for his will remained, and guided his servants, among them ever to thwart the will of the Valar, and to destroy those that obeyed them. This the lords of the West knew full well. When therefore Morgoth had been thrust forth, they held counsel concerning the ages that should come after. So basically the Valar are like, um, trying to figure out what to do next. Also, we do have a question, so I will stop here. Feel free to ask any questions uh, in the chat right now. So Nabulio asks, "Is Mor- so Morgoth isn't dead, but only banished. As of right now, yeah, you can't, really kill Morgoth. Um he is his spirit is is tied to um the world. Think of it like that. Like his spirit is kind of tied to the world. Um How do I how do I put this? Basically in the same way that the elves can't die, the valar can't be killed. Um or like their spirit can't be destroyed. They can only just be moved, kind of. So, in this case, they are moved to a a prison, if you will. Uh, but then we put forth—sorry, I lost my place. The Eldar they summoned to return into the west, so the Valar called the Elves to go back to the Undying Lands. And those that hearkened to the summons dwelt forever, dwelt in the Isle of Eressëa, And there is in that land a haven that is named Avalone, for it is of all cities the nearest to Valinor, and the tower of Avalone is the first sight that the mariners behold when at last he draws nigh to the undying lands over the leagues of the sea. To the fathers of men of the three faithful houses rich rewards were given. Aonwë came among them and taught them, and they were given wisdom and power and life more enduring than others of mortal race have possessed. A land was made for the Edain to dwell in, neither part of Middle-earth n- nor of Valinor, for it was sundered from either, the w- from either by the wide sea. Yet it was nearer to Valinor. It was raised by Ossë out of the depths of the great water, and it was established by Aule and enriched by Yavanna. So again, this is another brief recap. Uh, these names that you're hearing, Aule and Ossë and uh, Yavanna, these are all lesser gods known as the Valar in Middle-earth. Um, they were the ones that came over and destroyed um, destroyed Morgoth, who is also one of the Valar. This is, again, this is kind of like a recap of uh, and a refresher of those that uh, maybe were not here for the, uh, the rest of it, um, but you can sort of jump into this Uh, In Medius Res, or in in the middle. It's the literary term, I think, is In Medius Res, which is right in the middle of the action. That land the Valar called Andor, the land of gifts, and the star of Eorendil shone bright in the west as a token that all was made ready, and as a guide over the sea, and men marveled to see the silver flame in the paths of the sun. Then the Edain set sail upon the deep waters, following the star, and the Valar laid a peace upon the sea for many days, and sent sunlight and a sailing wind, so that the waters glittered before their eyes, of the Edain like rippling glass, and the foam flew like snow before the stems of their ships. But so bright was Rothinzil, that even the morning that even at morning men could see it glimmering in the west, and in the cloudless night it shone alone, for no other star could stand beside it. And setting their course towards it, the Adine came at last over leagues of sea, and saw afar the land that was prepared for them. Andor, the land of gifts, shimmering in golden haze. Then, they went up out of the sea and found a country fair and fruitful, and they were glad, and they called this land Elena, which is starwards, but also Anadune, which is westerness, Numenor in the High Eldarin tongue. So this is our first look at Numenor. Likely, if they do this right, I'm going to be mentioning the Amazon TV show a few times in this one, just, a, just a sort of let you all know ahead of time. Um, If they do the Lord of the Rings Amazon TV show correctly, I think what they could or should do is make this part the prologue. The recap of everything in the first stage and the founding of Numenor. Um, Whether or not they will choose to do that remains to be seen. I certainly hope they do, but we would see. This is the beginning of that people, that in the grey elven speech are called the Dúnedain, the Numenorians, kings among men. But they did not thus escape from the doom of death that Iluvatar had set upon all mankind, and they were mortal still, though their years were long, and they knew no sickness, ere the shadow fell upon them therefore they grew wise and glorious and in all things more like to the firstborn than any other of the kindreds of men and they were tall taller than the tallest of the sons of middle earth and the light of their eyes was like the bright stars but their numbers increased only slowly in the land for though daughters and sons were born to them fairer than their fathers yet their children were few so they didn't have a lot of kids to begin with um, I will pause there and just uh, take a couple of questions if anybody has some. And I see Rexbor underscore, so the fact that we know in what time the show is set. Yes, we do. So for those that are maybe not keeping up with uh, Lord of the Rings' Amazon TV show news, the Amazon TV show will be set in the Second Age, and everything that I am reading right now takes place during the Second Age, which is kind of why I said no spoilers. Uh, if you want no spoilers, you maybe want to avoid this part. Of old, the chief city and haven of Numenor was in the midst of the western coast, and it was called Adunie, because it faced the sunset. But in the midst of the land was a mountain, tall and steep, and it was named Menel Tarma, I'm going to try and pronounce that again, hang on. Menel Tarma, the pillar of heaven, and upon it was a high place that that was hallowed to Eru Iluvatar, and it was open and unroofed and no other tr- temple or fane was there in the land of the Numenorians. At the feet of the mountains were built the tombs of the kings, and hard by upon the hill was Armenelos, fairest of cities. And there stood a tower and citadel that was raised by Elros, son of Eärendil, whom the Valar appointed to be the first king of the Dunedain. You'll remember from last week, if you uh, were here, Elros was the first king of Numenor and Elrond's brother. He chose to be mortal, while Elrond chose to be an elf. Now Elros and Elrond, his brother, were descended from the three houses of the Adain, but in part also both from the Eldar and the Maiar. The Maiar are um, kind of like spirits that are um, not necessarily lesser gods. You can think of them like angels. Gandalf and the rest of the wizards, as well as the Balrogs and a couple of other things, are also Maiar. Uh, sorry, I lost my place again. Now Elros and his brother were descended to be the first... Oh, excuse me. Now Elros and his brother were descended from the three houses of the Edain, but in part also both from the Eldar and the Maiar. For Idril of Gondolin and Luthien, daughter of Melian, were their foremothers. So like great-great-great grandmothers. The Valar Indeed, may not withdraw the gift of death, which comes to men from Iluvatar. But in the matter of the half-elven, Iluvatar gave them the judgment, and they judged that, the, that too, the sons of Eodendil should be given a choice for their own destiny. Elrond chose to remain with the firstborn, as I just said, meaning the elves, and to him the life of the firstborn was granted. But Elros chose to be a king of men. Still, a great lifespan of years was allotted, many times that of the men of Middle-earth. And all his line, the kings and lords of the royal house, had long life according to the measure of the Numenorians. But Elros lived five hundred years and ruled the Numenorians for four hundred years and ten. So he had four hundred and ten years of kings. Okay, so we do have a couple of questions in chat. I will take a brief pause. If anyone else has questions about the Numenoreans or anything, um, I will happily answer them. Uh, Is Peter Jackson going to be involved? Uh, That is one of the questions over on Twitch—or excuse me, over on TikTok. As of right now, uh, it will be taking—the Amazon TV show will be taking place in the um, Peter Jackson universe, but I do not believe Peter Jackson is involved. Alright, do I think Aragorn was outlawed in the Shire for Hobbit rights violations after giving Pippin fruit for second breakfast? <laughs> bit of a meme question, but uh, no. Actually there's. I'll go on a brief tangent. Aragorn actually forbade any humans from entering the Shire because the Hobbits were so frightened of the big people and a little bit xenophobic, but by no fault of their own. Um, The coming of a human into the Shire was outlawed completely by Aragorn. So every year, um, or every few years, I think, he would visit um, Sam and the rest of the hobbits, but he would meet them on the border by, I think it is the Brandywine Bridge. Hope that answers your question. Let's continue. Thus the years passed. And while Middle-earth went backwards, and light and wisdom faded, the Dunedain dwelt under the protection of the Valar and in the friendship of the Eldar, and they increased in stature both of body and mind. And though this, and pe- pe- uh, though this people used still their own speech, their kings and lords spoke knew and spoke also the Elven tongue. For though this people still used their own tongue, their own speech, their kings and lords knew and spoke also in the elven tongue, which they, st- they had learned in the days of their alliance. Thus they held converse still with the Eldar, whether in, whether of Ersaea or of the westlands of middle earth, and the lore masters among them learned also the high Eldarin tongue of the blessed realm, in which much story and song was preserved from the beginning of the world. This is the elven tongue of, um, oh my gosh, it totally left me. There's Cinderin and Quenya. This is the elven language of Quenya. And they, and they made letters and scrolls and books and wrote in them many things of wisdom and wonder in the high tides of their realm, of which all is now forgotten. So it came to pass that, beside their own name, all the lords of the Numenorians had also Eldarin names, and the like of the cities and fair places that that they found in Numenor and on the shores of the Hitherlands. For the Dúnedain became mighty in crafts, so that if they had the mind, they could easily have surpassed the evil kings of Middle-earth in the making of war and forging of weapons. But they were become men of peace. Above all arts they nourished shipbuilding and sea-craft, and they became mariners, whose like shall never be again, since the world was diminished. And voyaging upon the wide seas was the chief feat and adventure of their hardy men in the gallant days of their youth. But the lords of Valinor forbade them to sail so far westward that the coast of Numenor could not be seen. And for long the Dúnedain were content— for though they did not fully understand the purpose of this ban. But the designs of Manwe was that the Numenorians should not be tempted to seek for the Blessed Realm, nor desire to overpass the limits set to their bliss, becoming enamored with the immortality of the Valar and the Eldar, and the lands where all things endure. For in those days Valinor still remained in the world, visible, and there Iluvatar permitted the Valar, to maintain upon Earth an abiding place, a memorial of that which might have been if Morgoth had not cast his shadow on the world. Basically like the idea being, yeah, you you can stay here because this is what would have been paradise everywhere if Morgoth hadn't screwed everything up. This the Numenorians knew full well, and at time when all the air was clear and the sun was in the east, they could look out and descry far off in the west a city white shining in the distant shores, and a great harbor and tower. For in those days the Numenorians were far sighted, yet even so it was only the keenest eye among them that could see this vision. From the Melantarma, maybe or from some tall ships that lay off their western coast, as far as it was lawful for them to go. A brief aside for those that maybe don't remember, at this point in uh, the history of Middle-earth and the Undying Lands, the universe is flat, right? The physical world itself is a flat line. Or a, a disc, maybe? A flat plane, let's call it. I don't know if we ever get an exact shape, but it is a plane. For they that do not dare to break the ban, for they do, did not dare to break the ban of the lords of the west. But the wise among them knew that this distant land was not indeed the blessed realm of Valinor, but was Avalone, the haven of the Eldar upon Erisa, easternmost of the undying lands. And thence at times the firstborn would still come sailing to Numenor in oarless boats, as white birds flying from the sunset, and they brought to Numenor many gifts, birds of song and fragrant flowers and herbs of great virtue and the seedlings they brought of caliborn the or of caliborn the white tree that grew in the midst of Arisaea, and that was in the and that was in its turn a seedling of galathelion the tree of Tuna, the image of telperion and Yavanna, that Yavanna gave in the courts of the kings of armenelos nimloth it was named and the flowering in the evening and the shadow of night was filled with its fragrance. Let me pause there for a brief second cuz goodness that was a lot of words and not a lot of them made sense. So, basically there was a tree that was created in the first age that Morgoth destroyed. The tree basically contained the light of the world and it was what um it was thought that that's what the silmarils were, the jewels from the first age that started the whole war that I was talking about. Basically There is a whole thing having to do with, if you've read the Lord of the Rings books or seen the movies, trees, especially trees of Gondor. So the idea is that the seedlings of these trees came from the Undying Lands, came to Numenor, and from Numenor eventually made their way back to the Undying, or excuse me, to Middle-earth. We'll see how that happens, uh, I think, in a little bit. Thus it was that because of the ban of the Valar, the voyages of the Dúnedain in those days went ever eastward, and not westward, from the darkness of the north, to the heats of the south, and beyond the south to the nether darkness. And they came came even into the inner seas, and sailed about Middle-earth, and glimpsed from their high prows the gates of morning in the east and the dunedain came at times to the shores of the great lands and they took pity upon the forsaken world of middle earth and the lords of numenor set forth again upon the western shores of the dark years of men in the dark years of men Uh, personally i feel like tolkien here is trying to do sort of like a uh rome versus middle age comparison here so uh, I, this is probably not he, what he was trying to do, but I always think of it as Rome is Numenor and the Middle Ages are uh, Middle-earth right now. So like the Numenorians have all of this technology and they're uh, high class and sophisticated and um, kind of like maybe a little bit smarter, stronger uh, Daft Punk songs, if you will, um, the Middle-earth at this point, though, is um, a little bit less refined. There's less, you know, architecture. There's less arts. There's less music. There's less, um, you know, the the kings of men are, are no more in that point. And a lot of the, the land is, like, burned and uh, destroyed. And there's new geography that's basically being torn up in all of this point um, because Um, because of the war between the Valar, these lesser gods, and Morgoth, the other lesser god. Um, And elves and men were a part of that, and dwarves as well, but the the land is just so um, shaken right now um, that a lot of the humans that are there don't have the same um, sort of access to um, resources anymore. And coming among them, the Numenorians taught them many things. Corn and wine they brought, and they instructed men in the sowing of seed, and the grinding of grain, in the hewing of wood, and the shaping of stone, and in the ordering of their life, such as it might be in the lands of swift death and little bliss. Then the men of Middle-earth were comforted, and here and there upon the western shores the houseless woods drew back. And the men shook off the yoke of the offspring of Morgoth, and unlearned their terror of the dark. And they revered the memory of the tall sea kings. And when they had departed, they called them gods, hoping for their return. For at that time the Numenorians dwelt never long in Middle-earth, nor made there at any at any habitation of their own. Eastward they must sail, but ever west their hearts returned." Now this yearning grew even ever greater with the years, and the Numenorians began to hunger for the undying city that they saw from afar, and the desire of everlasting life, to escape from death, and thus the ending of delight, grew strong upon them. And ever as their power and glory grew greater, their unquiet increased. For though the Valar had rewarded the Dúnedain with long life, they could not take f- from their, from them the weariness of the world that comes at last. And they died, even their kings, of their seeds of the Arundil. And the span of their lives was brief in the eyes of the Eldar. Thus it was that a shadow fell upon them, in which, maybe, the will of Morgoth was at work that still moved in the world. And the Numenorians began to murmur, at first in their hearts, and then, in open words, against the doom of men, and most of all against the ban which forbade them to sail into the west. Okay, so I'll do a brief recap here of basically everything that has happened so far. So, the Valar, the lesser gods of Middle-earth, have created this island in between the Undying Lands and Middle-earth that is basically in the middle of the sea, Tolkien's kind of version of Atlantis, if you will. And the humans that live there live like 500 years, and they're super strong, and they're super smart, and everything's great. This is Numenor. This is where Aragorn's ancestors come from. From there, the Numenoreans go over to Middle-earth, right, and they start trading with uh, the um, people, the humans that are still in Middle-earth, but they don't stay. They go back to Numenor, and the people in Middle-earth kind of are like, whoa, who are these people, and they think of them as gods. So things are going very well for a while until, and this is kind of where we get to the hook, this is the crux of the story, which is where I think we may see the start of the Amazon TV show's story. Uh, Everything up until now could very well be in a prologue. This, I think, is where they might start the story. Human beings, as you are probably aware, die. And in doing so, when you are comparing yourself as a human to these undying things, these Valar, these elves, these things that live forever, it kind of makes you jealous. Um, And so... The idea I think that Tolkien is trying to do to have is that in being mortal, that is their unrest. But in the same way, being mortal is a gift. The elves refer to the um, ability for humans to die as the gift of men. It's a little sexist, I know, but um, they, they think of it as the gift of humans. Elves can't leave the physical world. Humans may. We don't know where humans go when they die in Tolkien's universe. Um, after they go to the halls of Mantos. they 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 are are elsewhere. Um, so we're not sure. So we're not sure. Putting that's a good way. to Yeah, you could refer to it as the gift of all. Or, or the gift. I'm sorry. The gift of y'all. <laughs> I like it. Uh, so Tice asks, "Is being a Numenorian the reason Aragorn can survive so many falls?" <laughs> You know what? Oddly enough, um, Numenorians are a little bit, like, stronger and and tougher physically than other humans, so probably. Also, Taco, please tell your niece I say hello. Um, Monday also asks, is the world round yet? No, I think I said it a little bit earlier before, but uh, at this point still Middle-earth is flat. Let's carry on. Okay, this is actually a great conversation. This is a great conversation. Um, they said to themselves, they said among themselves, meaning, meaning humans, they said among themselves, why do the lords of the west sit there in peace unending while we must die and go we know not whither, leaving our homes and all that we have made, and the Eldar die not, even those that rebelled against the lords? And since we have mastered all seas and no water is so wild or so wide that our ships cannot overcome it, why should we not go to Alvalone and greet there our friends? And some there and there were some who said, Why should we not even go to Amman and taste there, were it but for a day, the bliss of the powers? Have we not become mighty among the people of Arda? The Eldar reported these words to the Valar, and Manwe was grieved, seeing a cloud gather on the noontide of Numenor. And he sent messengers to the Dúnedain, who spoke earnestly to the kings and to all who would listen, concerning the fate and fashion of the world. The doom of the world, they said, one alone can change who made it. And were you so to voyage that, escaping all deceits and snares, you came indeed to Aman, the blessed realm, little would it profit you. For it is not the lands of Manwe that make its people deathless, but the deathless that dwell therein have hallowed the land. And there you would but wither and grow weary the sooner, as moths in a light too strong and steadfast. This is an answer to a lot of people's questions. Do Bilbo and Frodo become immortal when they go to the Undying Lands at the end of Return of the King? This is your answer. No, they do not. But the king said, And does not Eorendil, my forefather, live? or is he not in the land of Amon? To which they answered, You know that he has a fate apart, and was adjudged to the firstborn who die not. Yet this also is his doom, that he can never return again to mortal lands, whereas you and your people are not of the firstborn, but are mortal men as Iluvatar made you. Yet it seems that you desire now to have the good of both kindreds, to sail to Valinor when you will, and to return when you please to your homes. That cannot be. Nor can the Valar take away the gifts of Iluvatar. This is my favorite quote in the entirety of the Silmarillion. The Eldar, you say, are unpunished, and even those who rebelled do not die. Yet that is to them neither reward nor punishment, but the fulfillment of their being. They cannot escape and are bound to the world never to leave it so long as it lasts for its life is theirs and you are punished for the rebellion of man you say in which you had small part and so it is that you die but that was not at first appointed for a punishment thus you escape and leave the world and are not bound to it in hope or in weariness which of us therefore should envy the others." I'll pause there very briefly because I think that is one of the most important lines that Tolkien ever wrote. That in and of itself wraps up the entirety of elves versus humans, mortality versus immortality, how you explain the the culture and the worlds of the Lord of the Rings. The elves live forever, and they are here and they are tired. And the humans, they are here only a little bit, and they can leave. And both are scared, right? The idea of immortality is, I think at its base, a very difficult thought for humans to wrap their minds around, but the actual idea of immortality from the standpoint of, I'm going to live forever, is a little bit daunting. Humans will eventually pass away. But the elves envy them sometimes, right? Their world, their whole life, their whole existence is going to be the same no matter what. They will live on the undying lands in the physical world and then when they die, their bodies will go to the, or their spirits will go to the halls of Mandos and then they'll be reborn. And it will be like that forever. Humans live 500 years and then they go away. And they don't know where they go. And it is in that unknown that I think the elves are envious. Because it is something new. So in the end, or rather, from the beginning, Eru, the god in Tolkien's universe, made death to be a gift to humans rather than a curse. And I think it is through Sauron and his master Morgoth that this corruption, this idea of but I want to live forever, came. It might also be Tolkien trying to do a little bit of, um, you know, human nature, but that may come a little bit later. I'll, I'll hold off. And the Numenorians answered, why should we not envy the Valar, or at least, or even the least of the deathless, meaning the elves? For of us is required a blind trust and a hope without assurance knowing not what lies before us in a little while. And yet we also love the earth and would not lose it. Then the messengers said, Indeed, the mind of Iluvatar concerning you is not known to the Valar, and he has not revealed all things that are to come. But this we hold to be true, that your home is not here, neither in the land of Amon, nor anywhere within the circles of the world. And the doom of men that they should depart, was at first a gift to Iluvatar—a gift of Iluvatar, excuse me. It became a grief to them only because, coming under the the shadow of Morgoth, it it seemed to them that they were surrounded by a great darkness, of which they were afraid. And some grew willful and proud, and would not yield until life was reft from them. We who bear the ever-mounting burden of the years do not clearly understand this. But if that grief has returned to trouble you, as you say, then we fear that the shadow arises once more and grows again in your hearts. Therefore, though you be Dúnedain, fairest of men who escaped from the shadow of old and fought valiantly against it, we say to you, beware. The will of Eru may not be gainsaid. And the Valar bid you earnestly not to withhold the trust for which you are called, lest soon it become again a bond by which you are constrained. Hope, rather, that in the end, even the least of your desires shall have fruit. The love of Arda was set in your hearts by Iluvatar, and he does not plant to no purpose. Nonetheless, many ages of men unborn may pass ere that purpose is made known, and to you it will be revealed, and not to the Valar. These things took place in the days of Tar-Kiryatan, the shipbuilder, and of Tar-Atanemir, his son. And these were proud men, eager for wealth. And they laid the the men of Middle-earth under tribute, taking now rather than giving. And it was to to Tar-Atanemir that the messengers came, and he was the thirteenth king and in his day the realm of Numenor had endured for more than two thousand years, and was come to the zenith of its bliss, if not yet of its power. But Atonimir was ill-pleased with the counsel of the messengers, and gave little heed to it, and the greater part of his people followed him, for they wished to escape death in their own day, not waiting upon hope. And Atanamir lived to a great age, clinging to his life beyond the end of all joy, and he was the first of the Numenorians to do this, refusing to depart until he was witless and unmanned, and denying to his sons the kinship at the height of his days. For the lords of Numenor had been wont to wed late in their long lives, and to depart and leave the mastery to their sons when these were come to the full stature of body and mind there is, uh, I'll pause very briefly here because there is a very cool point that I do want to explain. So Aragorn, when he passes away, passes away at the age of, I believe, 212. Um, it's either 212 or 210. When Aragorn passes away, he is not old, he is not withered, he is simply at the end of his, his, uh, his might, shall we say? He is old. Don't get me wrong. But I think, in the way that we see people who live until they are, you know, ninety or—can you all hear that? Yeah, that's my dog scratching at the carpet. River, stop, please. In Numenorean culture, what a lot of um, what a lot of the kings have done in the past and will, I think, continue to do at some points here, um, is that they will. Um, sort of step down from being king and let their sons, or in some cases daughters, um, there are female queens, I believe, uh, in Numenor. I think we'll hear that here in a bit. Um, And they will sort of, um, not necessarily die, but like step down uh, from being king and um, pass away maybe a few years later, um, but not of like super old decrepit age. Rather, it it, it is something like, the good Numenoreans know it's my time. I can go. So it has been fun. I will see you all later. Then Tar on. Uh, you're going to have to excuse me on all of these names, by the way. Tar is the abbreviation. It's Tar dash, and then their name. So Tar um. Tar and then the name. Tar is like the the, is it suffix or no pr- prefix? It's whatever is in the beginning as, like, the title, meaning ruler. Then, then Tar-al-Kaliman, then son of Atanamir, became king, and he was of like mind, and in his day the people of Numenor became divided. One, on the one hand, was the greater party, and they were called the king's men, and they grew proud and were estranged from the Eldar and the Valar. And on the other hand was the lesser party, and they were called the Elendili, the elf-friends. For though they remained loyal indeed to the king and the house of Elros, they wished to keep the friendship of the Eldar, and they hearkened to the counsel of the lords of the west. Nonetheless, even they, whom named themselves the Faithful, did not wholly escape from the affliction of their people, and they were troubled by the thoughts of death. Thus the bliss of westernness became diminished. But still its might and splendor increased, for the kings and their people was not yet, uh, had not yet abandoned wisdom, and if they loved the Valar no longer, at least they still feared them. They did not dare openly to break the ban or to sail beyond the limits that they had been appointed. Eastward still they steered their tall ships, but the fear of death grew ever stronger upon them, and they delayed it by all means that they could. And they began to build great houses for their dead, while their wise men labored unceasingly to discover, if they might, the secret of unrecalling life, or, at the least, of prolonging of men's days." This is where I think we could potentially see a very cool kind of character in the Amazon TV show, some sort of, like, dark priest or priestess that is trying to uncover the secrets of long life. I feel like that I feel like that could be a very cool character. I don't necessarily know if we'll see something like that, but I think it would be pretty awesome. Mm. Yet they achieved only the art of preserving uncorrupted the dead flesh of men, and they filled all their lands with silent tombs in which the thoughts of death were enshrined in the darkness. But those that lived Turned the more eagerly to pleasure and revelry, desiring ever more goods and more riches. And after the days of Tar An Kaliman, the offerings of the first fruits to Eru were neglected, and the men went seldom any more to the Hallow, upon the heights of Menel Tarma, in the midst of the land. Thus it came to pass that in the time that the Numenorians first made great settlements upon the western shores of the ancient lands, meaning Middle-earth, for the, oh, excuse me, thus it came to pass that in that time the Numenorians first made their great settlements upon the west shores of the ancient lands, for their own lands seemed to them shrunken, and, th- and they had no rest or content therein, and they desi- and they desired now wealth and dominion in Middle-earth, since the west was denied. Great harbors and strong towers they made, and there many of them took up their abode and they appeared now rather as lords and masters and gatherers of tribute than as helpers and teachers. And their great ships of the Numenorians were borne east to the winds, and returned ever laden, and the power and majesty of their kings increased. And they drank, and they feasted, and they clad themselves in silver and gold. In all this the elf friends had small part. They alone came now ever to the north and the land of Gilgalad, keeping their friendship with the elves, and le- keeping the friendship with the elves and the lending them aid against Sauron. And their haven was Pelargir, Pelargir, P-E-L-A-R-G-I-R, Pelargir, above the mouth of the Anduin the Great. But the king's men sailed far away to the south, and the lordship and strongholds that they made have left many rumors in the legends of men. I just want to pause there briefly, see how much longer we have. Oh, it's a ways. Alright, I'll keep going then. In this age, as is elsewhere told, Sauron arose again in Middle-earth, and grew, and turned back to the evil in which he was nurtured by Morgoth, becoming mighty in his service. Already in the days of tar menas minas In the—sorry already in the days of Tar-Minastir the 11th king of Numenor he had fortified the land of Mordor and had built there the tower of Barad-dûr and therefore he strove ever for the dominion of Middle-earth to become a king over all kings and as a god unto men and Sauron hated the Numenorians because of the deeds of their fathers and their ancient alliance with the elves and their alliance with the valar nor did he forget the aid that Tar Menastir had rendered to Gilgalad of old. And Sauron hated the Numenorians because of the deeds of their fathers and their ancient alliance with the elves and the allegiance to the Valar, nor did he forget the aid that Tar Menastir had rendered to Gilgalad of old. In that time when the One Ring was forged, and there was war between Sauron and the Elves of Eriador. Now he learned that the kings of Numenor had increased in power and splendor, And he hated them, and feared them, lest they should invade his lands and wrest from him the dominion of the east. But for a long time he did not dare challenge the lords of the sea, and withdrew from them, and he withdrew from the coast. Yet Sauron was ever guileful, and it was said that among those whom he ensnared with the nine rings, three were lords of the Numenorean race and when the ulari arose that were the that were the ring his servants and the strength of his terror and mastery over men had grown exceedingly great he began to assail stro- strong places sorry it feels like i skipped a page and the strength of his terror and mastery over the men had grown exceedingly great he began to assail the strong places of the númenorians upon the shores of the sea in those days the shadow grew deeper upon Numenor, and the lives of the kings of the house of Elros waned because of their rebellion, and they hardened their hearts the more against the Valar. And the twentieth king took the scepter of his father, and he ascended the throne to the name <laughs> sorry, uh, Adunacor. A-D-U-N-A-K-H-O-R, with an accent over the U and the O. I'm going to say Adunakor. I could very well be wrong, though. Lord of the West, that's what Adunakor means, forsaking the elven tongues and forbidding their use in his hearing. Yet in the scroll of kings his name was Herunumen, which inscribed in the high elven speech because of ancient customs which the kings feared to break utterly, lest evil befall them. Now this title seemed to the faithful overproud, being the title of the Valar, and their hearts were sorely tra- t- uh, tried between their loyalty to the house of Elros and their reverence to the appointed powers. But worse was yet to come. For Al-Ar-Gimizor, the 23rd king, was the greatest enemy of the faithful. In his day, the white tree was untended, began to decline, and he forbade utterly the use of the elven tongues, and punished those that welcomed the ships of Erisea, that still came secretly to the western shores of the land. Now the Elendiri dwelt mostly in the western regions of Numenor, but ar Gimizor, Gimilzor, commanded all those he could all that he could discover to be of his party to remove from the west and dwell in the east of the land, and there they were watched. And the chief dwelling of the faithful in the lands of later days, thus nigh to the harbors of Romena, thence many set sail from Middle earth, seeking the northern coasts, where they might speak still with the Eldar in the kingdom of Gilgalad. This was known to the kings. But they, hither, they hindered it not, so long as the elderly departed from their lands, and did not return. For they desired to end all friendship between their people and the Eldar of Eressëa, whom they named the Spies of the Valar, hoping to keep their deeds and their counsels hidden from the lords of the west. But all that they did was known to Manwë, and the Valar were wroth with the kings of Númenor, and gave them counsel and protection no more and the ships of Eressëa came never again out of the sunset, and the havens of, uh, of Andune were forlorn." This is the part where it gets a little bit, and then there was this king, and then there was this king, and then there was this king. Um, I may pause here after a moment. Actually, you know what? Yeah, I'm gonna pause here uh, for, the, uh, for the day.